Let me open in prayer. Father, I want to thank you. As we're going through this series on waiting upon the Lord, we are declaring this, that we will see with confidence, we will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Father, this year, the goodness of our God will come and visit us individually, families, as a church. And we believe this, Lord God. You have good things in store. We don't always know what they look like. Sometimes they're so very different than what we ask for, but they are so good. And I'm just asking you, God, as we now look into your word one more time, give us a revelation of your truth. Give us a deeper understanding of who you are and how we can walk in your grace today, this week, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've been going over Waiting Upon the Lord. This is actually now the third in a series within a series, okay? The series is Waiting Upon the Lord. And before we got into how we actually seek God, I told you we really need to look at how God actually communicates his will to us. And we saw several things, five things so far, actually. The scripture Number one, the spirit who then takes the scripture and illuminates our hearts and shows us exactly how we're to walk that out, how we're to apply it. But then also, not everything is like black and white, so to speak, right or wrong. There, should I accept this promotion or should I not? That's not always a godly uh, yes or, or an ungodly no, but God needs to still speak to us and show us. How does he do that? He does it through circumstances, opening and closing doors. That's number three. Number four, we looked at dreams and visions. Last week, we looked at prophecy. And let's just realize that prophecy is not simply new revelation of truth. For, for that reason, because of that narrow understanding of what prophecy is, many in our day say, well, since the canon is closed, God doesn't reveal new truths to us, which is true. Therefore, there are no prophecies. See, I, I need to challenge that. See, we need to realize that prophecy is more than just a revelation or new revelations of truth. I can, you can actually break them down into four categories, technically two big categories, and then each of those have two categories. So I'm just going to list, there's forthtelling and foretelling. That's how you can break it down simply. But with, there are two within the first, two within the second, and so if you want to write this down, this is just for those of you who are kind of geeky like me and you just, you just like to know trivial facts. Number one, it's instructive. So prophecy will encourage and comfort and build up through words of instruction, knowledge, wisdom, and such. Number two, it's corrective. So it's instructive, it's corrective, it's directive, and then lastly, it's predictive. So prophecy can fall into any of those four categories. Prophecy is throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. There's plenty of examples of prophecy in the New Testament but of all of the examples of prophecy and all of the teaching of prophecy, we never once find instruction or an example of someone going to a prophet like they did many times in the Old Testament and saying, hey, can you get a word from God for me? And there's a reason for that. Number one, that we as New Testament believers all have the spirit of God. And there's, there's a reason for this because number two, in having the spirit, then God wants us by that spirit to press in and seek him. 
And God, through his spirit, is going to give us, and we're going we're to look at three more ways that God speaks to us. And then we're actually, there's even more than that. I'm just going to kind of throw in a little bonus there from scripture that I, I think is really going to minister to us. But God wants this process. He wants us to walk through this process of pressing in to know him. You see, it says here, and I read this to you, so I'm only going to just touch on it. But it says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. For you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. See, that's the key here. Seeking God with all of our heart. And that is a process. God chose not to make it super simple. But he gave you his spirit because now in this process, God is going to do something so profound in you. God is going to do something so profound in your heart this year, 2023, as you're seeking him. And, and to be honest with you, sometimes when we're seeking him, we're seeking him with tears because... Man, our hearts are broken. Maybe our hearts are broken for someone else. But life can be so hard. And so many times, the decisions we make, they're just not simple. And it's going to force you to seek him. How? With all of your heart. That's the key. That's the process that God truly delights in. And I would even go so far as to say that God delights in this process as much as or even more than the very purpose for this process that is discovering God's will. So, I want to share with you now number six, because there's eight of them in here. We've looked at the first five. Number six is very similar to this idea of seeking prophecy, but please understand it is different. This is number six, seeking godly counsel. You're not seeking a prophetic word. You're not seeking a thus saith the Lord to kind of short circuit this process. Okay, God's spoken, we're done. No, we're seeking counsel and we need to learn to weigh the counsel because sometimes the counsel comes to us this way. You know what scripture says, and, and maybe they share three scriptural principles that when someone is saying, should I marry this man who's not a christian and someone who's godly says but scripture says and shares with you very humbly but very matter-of-factly three scriptures or more that would challenge you not to marry because that is not the heart of god for you to marry an unbeliever as a christian you don't marry an unbeliever and there's very good reasons for that but then counsel can also be found on another level. Because as we're saying, seeking a promotion is just, sim is just, sim it's just simply not black and white, right or wrong. And we need to seek God's will. And so what we do is we are challenged by Scripture. Wow, if I can turn this page. We can, we're challenged by Scripture to seek counsel. Let me just share several Scripture passages with you. Acts, excuse me, <laughs> Proverbs 20. 18 it says this make plans by seeking advice if you wage war obtain guidance proverbs 15:22 it says plans fail for lack of counsel but with many advisors they succeed 
Proverbs 11.14 says this. For the lack of guidance, a nation falls. But many advisors make victory sure. And then lastly, I want to share this. Psalm 1.1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers or mockers. Rehoboam, when he was wondering what he should do about the people's problems concerning taxation, disregarded their challenges of looking at Solomon, his father's reign, and he said, you know what? If you think he was tough on you, I'm going to be tougher. And the nation was divided. They just said, see ya. Ten tribes, the northern kingdom, separated from the southern two tribes. Rehoboam walked in the counsel of the ungodly. He sought not the counsel of the elderly who would have more wisdom, young people, wisdom, okay, gray heads, right, but sought the counsel of his peers. Now, Rehoboam wasn't 18 years old. He was much older than that. So he's not like looking for teenagers. Not that teenagers don't have wisdom, okay? You heard me back there, right, Peter, Grace? Okay, you heard me. God has wisdom for teenagers, but the Bible says seek godly counsel. So who do we seek counsel from? Number one, seek it from godly people. People who are seasoned in the word. They don't just know the word. They've walked in it. They've, they've walked it out. They've been challenged by potential compromises. And they said, you know what? Even though this is going to hurt me, I'm going to do what I believe the word of God is showing me here. And so they not just have knowledge and understanding. They have wisdom, experience, taking the word, lived it out. Listen to the godly. Hopefully, the elderly, the olders, have been able to get that wisdom. Why? Because the younger people, they just generally, not always, but generally, have not had opportunity to be exposed to a whole lot of issues in life and been forced to know the will of God in these various areas. Now, again, that's not always true. David was a young man, and he had plenty of wisdom. So, you understand what I'm saying? Don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Seek godly counsel. You get, number two, you get godly counsel. Let me put it this way. You get wisdom, and God challenges us to seek this wisdom and counsel from those who are in authority of us. Whether they're believers or not. When we were thinking about buying our very first house, I sought counsel from a number of people, but one of the people I sought counsel from was my wife's dad. He was not a believer by any stretch of the imagination. But see, he had wisdom because he had, he had knowledge, okay? He understood finances. Some of his practices I didn't necessarily agree with, but I would generally say most of them. He was a wise investor, and so I listened to him. So you listen to parents. Now, this is going to be tricky because the younger the child, the more compelled they are to obey their parents in everything. When they reach teenage years, when they're under the roof, they still 
obey their parents in everything, but hopefully the parent has a little bit more wisdom and tries to leave as many of the decisions up to the teenager. As the teenager is growing, part of that growth requires wisdom. How do you obtain wisdom if you've never been exposed to difficult situations and had to make your own decisions? And so as my kids grow up, there was a, a point in, as they're in their teenage years, I was having them make more and more decisions of their own. It takes a wise parent to know what decisions that they should make and what decisions, okay, I'm going to have to make that one for you, okay? You're 14, you want to drive the, the car on 417? Not, not happening, okay? There's others, I'm being facetious. Of course we say no, right? Yes, of course we say no. But you see counsel from your, your parents, and then in the next stage is when, say, you get married, you have your own home, or let's say you're not married and you're on your own. The parent then plays a different role, just like my wife's dad played a different role. His, she, he did not say, Mike, this is what you need to do. You need to obey me. Yeah, well, I would have said, Jim, I love you. I appreciate your counsel. But I need to make a decision for my family. I'm the one that stands before the Lord. And, and I'm accountable for how I spend the money that I've earned. And as the head of my home, this is what we need to do. And so there's different roles that parents play in different seasons of the child's life. But we seek the counsel and wisdom of those in authority, like parents, like pastors. Okay? The next one is we want to listen to our pastors. Did I already say that? But anyway, I'll move on. We need to listen to our pastors. and that's So anyway, those who are in spiritual authority over us, and it's not just pastors. It, it could be when you are uh, just being mentored by a godly older man. You have, in essence, come under his tutelage. You've listened to him. Do you realize it's very possible that Jesus was not just mentored by his dad, but he could well have been mentored by another man? We don't know that. There's some books that were written, we don't even know exactly when they were written, that have suggested this. And, and even stories that flow from that. But the bottom line is, that's not gospel truth, we don't know that. The truth, though, is that we then listen to pastors, we listen to spiritual mentors, those who we look to who have spiritual wisdom. We listen to our spouses, if you're married. Husbands listening to their wives. Wives listening to their husbands. This is important. When you're making decisions, you need to do this. I know my father-in-law used to tell us, you know what? Barbara and I, we've made a decision in which we share all the decisions and at this point, she, all of our decisions have been the hard ones, and she's made them. And, but tell you what, I'm waiting for that hard decision to come my way, and I will step right in. The truth, though, is that we have a tendency to listen. And when we're listening to people, we want them to tell us what to do. Because this decision is hard, and we don't want to be the fall guy in this. Can, and, and can I be honest with you? Some people in our church have come to me, and they've sought my counsel, and I've had, I've had to tell them, you know what? I'm not making this decision for you. 
I'm going to tell you, I'm going to suggest this or this, but you need to make this call. And I've had to do that because sometimes I've recognized they're just wanting me to make the decision for them. And that's not my place. I'm not your dad. In a spiritual sense, I am in a way. Even though Cole and, you know, I, I can be for you in, in, in that way, I suppose. But the truth is that I am your pastor, I am your counselor, and I give you advice. You then, having the Spirit of God, need to make your own decision. Okay? That's important. That's important. However, on the other hand, not only might we walk into a situation and kind of yield that please tell me what to do, like a child would to his parent, but sometimes we walk into a situation, and I've had this experience many times, of course, as a pastor, but someone comes to me, and I can tell they've already made up their mind. And I'm wondering, why are they even asking for my advice? But I guess it's because they heard a sermon one day that said, you know, you should listen to your pastor. As a matter of fact, you should listen to your pastor. And anyway, they, they took that advice, but they had already made up their mind. And so I'm just going to encourage you, when you seek counsel, not just from a pastor, anybody, when you seek counsel, don't already have your mind made up. And so as a result, you are listening to counsel, not so that they'll make the decision for you, and not just so that they're going to rubber stamp something for you, but so that you can listen and weigh it. Okay? And may I suggest that not all, you're not going to weigh all counsel equally. And so when I listen to Meredith's dad giving me counsel about my house, okay, that's financial. I'm probably going to weigh the counsel of a pastor who has the same knowledge more heavily. I think you can follow that. The problem, though, is when we have already made up our mind, or, and, and I can hear it in their voice when someone is sharing something with me, I can hear they've made up their mind because they're really passionate about it, and they really want it. And before I give any counsel, I will generally tell them, it sounds to me as if you've already made up your mind. And if you haven't, it sounds as if it's still something you really want to do. So I'm going to share my advice, but I'm going to ask that you weigh what I have to say. And, and even though you really want to do this, and I'm not going to say that what you really want to do is necessarily wrong, but there's a chance that it's going to cloud your mind and you truly will not be able to be led by the Lord. Because our emotions don't lead us, church. All right, we lead our emotions. Okay, that's important. It can cloud the voice of God. So we weigh the counsel. Along with all of these other things, we're weighing it and we're thinking it through. We're praying it through. The next thing, so this would be number seven. Is the spirit speaking to you? Now this is different than number two where the spirit takes the word and guides us and shows us how to apply it in certain situations. This now is something slightly, this is the spirit of God actually speaking to us. And when he does this, it's going to generally be in a way you're not necessarily looking for. Let me just give you a very clear but simple example. And that is Elijah on Mount, uh, on Mount Horeb. He is seeking God. And he has just experienced truly an amazing act of God. 
in what appears to be a revival on the cusp. Or a move of God on the, on the cusp of revival. Because as he, as he put to the sword all 450 prophets of Baal, because the fire of God fell upon his sacrifice and not on the 450 prophets of Baal's sacrifice, and this sacrifice was consumed as well as all of the water on the sacrifice, all of the water in the trench. There were 12 jars of water. It's really hard, by the way, to ignite water, if you were wondering. Licked it up, it said. Licked it up. Like it was thirsty. Gone. Amazing miracle of God. And having experienced this, he was really hoping, as, as, the, as the people responded, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. He was, Elijah was, this is it. This finally... The kingdom's going to be united. God's going to do something amazing in our land. Finally, people are going to repent and turn back to the Lord. And here's what happened. Jezebel found out about it, and she put her foot down and said, I want his life on a platter, so to speak. And he ran for his life. He realized that he had failed, that there's no revival that was going to come. And God had more to give to him. But while he is seeking God on Horeb, God shows him various things, fire, a, 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 a twister. And it says with each of these three things that happened, God was not in them. And then a still small voice spoke to him. That still small voice was so different than what God had done on Mount Horeb and what God had just done on these three experiences, but God was not in them, not this time. And in essence, God wanted to speak to him very quietly, very tenderly, very personally. And this is how the Spirit of God will generally speak to you. Now, when it says that God spoke... In the, in the New Testament, in Acts 8.29, let, let me just, uh, let, let me back up just a moment. In Acts 9, Jesus actually speaks from heaven with an audible voice. That's not what I'm talking about. In Acts 10, Peter hears from heaven when a sheet is let down, he hears a voice from heaven and the voice from heaven tells him, rise, kill, and eat. And there's a dialogue that takes place. Let me show you that is different, though, than what I'm speaking about here. Let me give you three quick examples of the Spirit speaking to someone's heart in the book of Acts. In Acts 8-9, the Spirit told Philip to go to a certain chariot. Excuse me, God told God, the Spirit told Philip to go to a certain chariot... And to stay near it. An angel had appeared to him just prior to that. That was different. Now it's the spirit speaking to him. Now I don't know if it's an audible voice. I have a feeling because in this next example in Acts 10.19. Where Peter again. A voice from heaven speaks in an audible voice. And then listen to this. It says while Peter was still thinking about the vision. 
with the uh, sheep being let down and the unclean animals on it, the Spirit said to him, so this seems to be a contrast, a voice from heaven and now a spirit, and I, it seems as if it's an inaudible voice. The voice from heaven was audible, the, one in hi- the, the spirit now is speaking inaudibly, but it's very clear. The spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. And the spirit impressed this upon him. Now again, I'm not sure that this, it was inaudible, but it just seems that way the way Luke sets up this contract, the contrast, the voice from heaven and now the spirit speaking to him. And in Acts 20, 22, we, again, we see a very similar situation with the Spirit. Now, it, it appears as if the Spirit has spoken to Paul, and he says, and I mentioned this last week, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me, that is, through prophecies, The Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. We have an example of that in the next chapter. We looked at that last week. So the Spirit of God was compelling him. How did the Spirit do that? He doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that when some people begin to speak and their hearts are being shaped by the Spirit to warn him, it seems as if they go above what the Spirit is truly revealing to them, and then they add on and don't go to Jerusalem. So can I just say that prophecy is in part, and therefore it needs to be weighed. What of this is of the Lord? What is not? And that, my friends, is something that you need to be praying about. We don't just accept every prophecy. We must be careful. We must be careful. So this compelling then of the Spirit trumped the prophecies that Paul heard that were urging him not to go to Jerusalem, seeing that the Spirit was now compelling him to go to Jerusalem. That word compel means to bind. It means to bind. It means to tie. The Spirit had obligated, had bound him. This is what he must do. And so consequently, he was, he, the Spirit spoke to him, the Spirit was guiding him, and I truly believe that it was the Spirit speaking to him, more than likely not in an audible voice, but in an inaudible voice to his Spirit. Now, I don't know if he was in prayer at the time. I'm not suggesting that God the Father only spoke to his Son while he was in prayer. We don't know that. Many times, just like with Philip, He was walking along, obeying the command of the angel to go to a road that went from Jerusalem to Joppa, and then the Spirit spoke to his heart. It doesn't appear that he was in prayer. He was just obeying the Lord, the command that the Lord had given the angel, and then the Spirit spoke to him and said, here's the next step. Can I just ask you, do you believe that the Spirit can speak to your heart? Do you believe this? then what is it 
that you personally believe that God, by his spirit, is speaking to your heart about this coming year. Now, can I just say this? That sometimes when we believe the spirit is speaking to us or impressing things upon our heart, we can be mistaken. You know, in the Old Testament, Elijah started a school of the prophets. And it seems as if many of the prophets had a school, mentoring younger prophets, trying to teach them the ways of the Lord, understanding the law of Moses, and then how on earth do you even hear from God? How does God speak to you? How can you be preparing your heart to hear from God and so on? And the Spirit of God would be able to speak to their hearts because their hearts had been cultivated. So I'm just going to encourage you to be cultivating your heart. And in just a moment, I'm going to share a very good way to do that. The eighth thing, the very last thing, is angelic visitations. I'm only going to spend a moment on this. There are five of these occurrences in the book of Acts. In chapter 8, an angel appears to the apostles in prison and frees them. In chapter 12, Similar situation, an angel appears to Peter while he's in prison. Shackles drop to the ground, door opens, the angel leads him out and out of the, the gate of the, the prison. In chapter 10, the angel appears to Cornelius and says, hey, send a guy to Joppa and find this man Peter. I've got something for, that Peter needs to tell you. Chapter 8, the spirit speaks to Philip, and I mentioned this Go to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza, and I have something for you. When the angel strikes Herod, I'm not going to consider that an angelic visitation, but this angel did strike Herod dead in chapter 12. The fifth occurrence is when the angel told Paul, while there was a hurricane going on around him, and he was on board a ship, the angel stood next to him and said, Paul, the Lord says you're going to go to Rome and be on trial and that he's going to save and rescue the lives of every single person on this ship. And Paul tells him, he said, that prophecy was given, but if you get off this ship, I can't tell you what's going to happen. But if you stay on the ship, you're going to be fine. And God did exactly what he promised. It says in Hebrews 1.14 that spirits minister and serve the saints. We see Jesus at the end of 40 days exhausted, having endured numerous temptations, three of which are recorded for us, and by, that, by the end of the 40 days he was exhausted and the angel, angels came and ministered to Jesus. Wow. Angels ministered to Jesus. I'm just kind of wondering, what did they say? How do you minister to the Son of God? But they ministered to Jesus. But I don't know how the angels minister to us. There's numerous ways in which they protect us, in which they actually stir situations, cause things to happen. The exact part that they play, Scripture is not very clear on. So I'm just going to caution you in this area. Only a little bit is revealed to us about angels, only a little bit about demons. We take what Scripture says, be ever so careful, if you seek to add on to that, because you may very well run into error. 
and some have. Galatians 1.8, Paul says, But even if us or an angel from heaven were to preach a gospel other than the one you received from us, let him be eternally condemned. Okay, an angel from heaven, don't even listen to them if they preach something contrary to the gospel, contrary to your call to devotion to Jesus Christ. Paul tells us, you know what? Satan is an angel of light and he comes to deceive. Don't listen to him. Learn to weigh this. And it was, it was about 15 years ago in which Todd Bam Bam Bentley came to North, came to Lakeland, and there was some sort of revival that they said. And, and let me just say this to clarify what I'm going to mention here. But I believe that it's possible for false prophets to proclaim a gospel. They can be unconverted by the very gospel that they preach. I don't know any more than that concerning Todd. I am not his judge, but he has borne horrible fruit in his life. Numerous times confronted by godly men. 60 eyewitnesses, 60 people witnessing, testifying to his immorality. And yet he is still in ministry today. And so you know, let me just take a week vacation and, you know, I'm sorry. When these types of charges are brought against you and when Michael Brown, Dr. Michael Brown pulled together a number of people, not at Todd Bentley's request, but because Todd Bentley was not accountable really to anyone. And he said, we need to make this decision for the sake of the body of Christ and not for Todd Bentley. They listened to these accusations and they said this, this man will never be ready for ministry. Not ever, his own ministry that is. He will always, should he repent and truly seek after God, he will always need to be under another authority and never his own. And of course, Todd Bentley is off on his own. But when you listen to what he says in the Lakeland Revival, he said, you know what, you were, I've, I've preached Jesus enough. I'm going to tell you about a visitation I had from an angel. And the angel spoke to him and said, they know about Jesus. Now they need to know about the angel. Can I just say, Colossians chapter 2.18 is very clear on this. And Colossians 2.18 says this. I can quickly turn to it. I forgot to mark it. 2.18 it says, do not let anyone who delights in false humility or the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle motions. He has lost connection with the head. He doesn't pull any punches here. This is just the way it is, guys. These people who are running off and listening to angels Man, they're losing connection, if they haven't already, losing connection with the head, Jesus Christ. Don't listen to them. It's all about the angel and their experience. Don't listen to those people, church. Don't listen to them. And people are just, they love to prattle on and on about their wonderful accomplishments and spiritual visitations of angels. I'm going to encourage you, don't listen to them. Paul himself could not even speak about that about a spiritual experience, he said, for fear that people would think too highly of him. An apostle! Thinking that pe people thinking that too highly of him because he's just a man. And the Lord went out of his way to keep Paul humble because of all of the persecution that he went through. 
Not too many people really, really wanted to listen to what Paul said. He was just doing his job right. That's all that I want to say about angelic visitations. They can happen. Be open to it. But don't be deceived. Please don't be deceived. Because Satan prowls around like a roaring lion. He comes as an angel of light to deceive even the very elect. I want to close with this. Romans 12.2, it says this. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. I'm not going to say that this is another way for God to speak to us. No, this is the very tool that we are to use to weigh these eight different ways that God speaks to us. It is, through the it is through the renewing of our mind that brings about transformation in our life. The renewing of your mind is going to come when truth impacts your mind, challenges you, calls you to the high calling of Christ, pure, sincere devotion to him, counting everything lost except Christ himself for the sake of Christ. Everything else in life is like rubbish compared to your passion, your love, your devotion to Jesus Christ. I just want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. This is what Paul's life ultimately was geared to. And so consequently, him listening to truth, Spirit of God speaking and teaching him, us listening to sermons, to the word of God being preached through our own study of the word, through prayer and pressing in to know God, our minds begin to be transformed. That is a process. It is a process. The Greeks laid it out here that way. It's a, it doesn't happen all at once. When I'm born again, my mind is completely renewed. Your mind just began being completely renewed. Yes, but it just began. And as a result, you are now being transformed. It is a process of transform. You are, your character sh shifting, changing. Your words are now changing. Who you are is changing and beginning to look more and more and more like Jesus Christ. As a result of the renewing of the mind, you're being transformed. And that is the place where you need to be. The more transformed you are, the better you will become. At what? It says here, to test and to prove what God's will is. Every Christian, though, can do that. I would venture to say, because this is a process, and it requires us seeking God with all of our heart, promises, remember, you'll find him, I believe that the more mature we become in Christ, the better we will be able to do this. The more renewed we are, the more transformed we become in this process, as we seek him and we are becoming more like him, we will better be able to test and approve what is God's good and perfect will. So here's my test question. Don't answer it out loud. Was it God's will that Jesus die on the cross? 
Don't answer that. I want you to think of an answer right now in your mind. And every single one of us are probably saying, yes, it was his God will. And at the same time, no, it wasn't God's will. And I would say to you, what? You're so confusing. Because here's what you're thinking. You know what? Well, yes, before the creation of the world, God knew that his son needed to die on the cross. But here's my question to you. When Jesus was dying on the cross, was God the Father having a celebration? Woo, he's dead. I don't think so. Actually, my Bible tells me in Revelation 12 there was war in heaven going on at that time. But Peter in Acts 2.22 says that it was according to the foreknowledge and the, the set purpose of God that Jesus died on the cross at the hands of wicked men. See, there is the permissive will of God and there is the perfect will of God. I'm just going to kind of pull this together in closing. It was the permissive will of God that Jesus was falsely charged with wrong, false testimony with, by the mouths of ungodly people who were jealous of his ministry, who were confused by his words, and who were ungodly. Those wicked men put Jesus to death, and that was in conformity with the permissive will of God. God did not rejoice at sin. But here's my question. Did God leave it at that? God's perfect will came out his permissive will. That imperfect Heart and acts of men in crucifying Jesus was redeemed, if you will, and merely sought to play into the hands of the perfect will of God. So let me just say this, that the things that happen in your life are not always according to what God truly desires. It is not according to God's perfect will, and it's wrong, and it's sin, and it should never have happened to you. Never have happened to you. But the challenge is, are you just, is your life sunk? Is it sabotaged? Has God abandoned you? Does God just say, whoops, that one slipped through my fingers? No, it did not. Jesus dying on the cross didn't just slip through Jesus. Oh, goodness, I'm going to have to do something about that now. No. It played into his plan perfectly. The worst evil ever perpetrated by men, the crucifixion, turned out to be the greatest act of God in his death and what all of that secured for us and in his resurrection. And all that secured for us. God can take the worst in your life. And even as you're praying and seeking God's will, and then this happens, seriously, God, and I sought you so hard, I just can't believe it. Can you just be patient with him? Can you allow him to bring ultimate good from what's going on in your life? Even though you've sought him with all of your heart, you looked at all of these eight things, you prayed in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to lay out how we can do this and such, but what, and you say, Mike, but I did it right I, I, with all of my heart, and I know I'm not perfect, but this, really? And I'm going to say, you know what? I don't know the beginning from the end. I'm not God, 
but I'm going to pray with you and I'm going to trust because God's word is true that he will bring ultimate good from everything that the devil, it seems, in winning the day has done to you because he has not won the day. Satan did not win the day on Good Friday. He did not. He merely played into the hands of God. And so can I encourage you as you're seeking God with all your heart and this happens really, God, it is only a situation in which the devil has played into the very hands of God and his ultimate good will prevail. And so I'm going to leave you with this. This, this is a, sometimes God brings us to point A to bring us to point B to bring us to point C and even further. Was it an ultimate goodwill for in number one and perfect will? No, it wasn't. But is this process as you are now forced to press into him more, not less, more pressing into him because he has such good in store for you, such good. He's building your faith. And out of that will become something so beautiful, so good, church. And I'm just going to leave you with this verse and then I'm going to pray, I promise. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says this. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day because of this process. Say, for our light and momentary trouble. Paul is saying his trials of like almost dying four times at sea. Light and momentary trials are achieving for us an eternal glory. Christ being formed is an eternal glory that far outweighs all of that. So, church, fix your eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Can you just stand with me? Father, I just ask you that your spirit would truly continue to speak to our hearts. Teach us, God, how not to give up, how to persevere, but how to press into you, to know you. Some of these things we're going to learn in the next week or so. And I just ask you, God, as we do that, would you speak to us in all of these different ways? May you make our hearts sensitive to your voice, the leading of your spirit, the counsel of godly men. And I just ask you, Lord, that your ultimate good will eventually be achieved. And that as a result, you, O oh God, will receive all the praise and all the glory. You're in control. You truly have only good things in store for us as we wait. And we praise you for it. Let our hearts just right now be all the more surrendered to your will.